Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. You know, it's very interesting the strange turns the conversations reach on our forums and the Paracast discussion forums. We've got people on there now debating as to whether vampires exist. Uh, I think I might have dated a few. <laughs> Let's not go there. Yeah, sorry about that. But we have an active thread on whether <laughs> vampires truly exist. It's not because we're now in the month of October and we have Halloween coming up. And maybe that is it, that we have Halloween coming up. And in honor of All Hallows' Eve, the strange creatures of the night are being invoked and they're visiting our form from merry old England. Well, I think it's just the fact that people love a good story and there have been great stories written about vampires over the years. People, well, there's the whole sexual connotation with the blood. That's a whole nother story, but people find those stories compelling. Anne Rice rode that donkey all the way to the bank. And, of course, Dracula this, Dracula that, all through the years, every incarnation of Dracula that you could imagine. Yet not a single one of them ever came close to the novel. Yeah, well, in terms of a paranormal field of study, have we ever seen any sort of compelling evidence to support this idea of these nocturnal creatures that feed on human blood? I don't know. I, I suspect not. I'd love to be proven wrong, by the way. Would you? But it had to be a female vampire. No, seriously, it'd be... That, you'd figure that if there are all these vampires walking around and they're having interactions with human beings, that there would be tangible proof of some sort, any sort. We talk about UFOs, we can turn to lots of reports of sightings. We can turn to the British Ministry of Defense's declassified documents that Nick Pope had told the audience at X conference about. There's some stuff we can refer to, but outside of the realm of fiction, what really does exist about vampires? Are we doing a vampire episode, by the way? I don't know. I wonder. I know we have to blame our friend Don Ecker for starting a thread on our forums talking about the Highgate vampire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't blame him. No, it's cool. We, we, people at this point are starting to accuse us of talking about UFOs 24-7. That's all we cover, even though if you look at the shows we've done over the past year and a half, there's been all sorts of stuff. But granted, we do tend to lean towards the UFO subject. There are probably simply a lot more interesting guests along those lines that we might find compelling. Which, by the way, I mean, this merits a mention. We are always looking for new people to have on the show, especially outside of the realm of UFOs. So if our listeners have suggestions, feel free to post them on the forums. We take those postings and those recommendations seriously. In fact, we have a general freewheeling chit-chat. I created that title so it'd be a tongue twister. Mm-hmm. And, and it, works. it works beautifully. And we have several threads there called Suggested Guests, where people yeah. recommend the kind of guests that they want to see on the show. And sometimes we'll act favorably, sometimes unfavorably. But there you go. You know, the guests we have today kind of takes me back quite a few years. We actually have Frank Ficino Jr. and Stan Friedman, of course, who returns to the show after an absence of several months. The last time we were talking, of course, about Barney and Betty Hill with Betty Hill's niece and, of course, Stan. And this time we're talking about a couple of things going back to 1952. And I remember reading the book They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by the late Gray Barker. Now, we all know Gray Barker as being the character who worked with 
Jim Mosley and in perpetrating a few pranks over the years. But yeah. in those days, Gray was very serious about UFO research. He was very much affected by the case of Albert K. Bender, who claimed he had been silenced in his UFO investigations by three men in black. And then there was the Flatwoods Monster case. A weird one, indeed. Indeed, one that has persisted in terms of being discussed for many, many years. And I talked to Frank very briefly during the crash retrieval conference that Ryan Wood sponsored, the one last year in Las Vegas. There'll be another one Mm -hmm. in Las Vegas this year. And he was talking about a totally different slant on Flatwoods. Not a creature, but something else entirely. And that's something I want to get into with him before we get into another subject, which will be a new book called Shoot 'em Down, The Flying hmm. Saucer Air Wars of 1952. And what does that mean? It means, apparently, an effort by our military to fire at the UFOs and knock those craft out of the sky, hmm. which I think is kind of crazy, although I guess in the Cold War atmosphere, maybe that's all the choice they felt they had. Perhaps. I have some issues with that whole idea, but obviously we'll be getting into them within moments on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. 
you are your parentage with Jesus and you are the David Danny. You never know what's going to happen next. Frank, I mentioned in our preamble to the show that I first became acquainted with Flatwoods by courtesy of Gray Barker's book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. But when I talked to you briefly over the Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas, you were kind of giving us a totally different slant on the case. So maybe you could, first of all, summarize where your research began and where it has ended up. Okay. Uh, Gray Barker was one of the original investigators in the Flatwoods Monster case that occurred on September 12, 1952. And Barker, like so many of the other researchers, they never looked outside of Braxton County, the county where Flatwoods is located. And what I discovered through uh, about 15 years of research is Flatwoods was just a small little piece of an entire story that um, actually involved 18 and a half hours of UFO sightings on that particular day. Oh, um, boy. Oh, boy. These fellas never looked outside of the area. Back then, the Project Blue Book documents were not released. Um, I was privileged at the point I started researching the case to have looked through these uh, documents, and um, there was approximately 180 pages gene of different um, incidents that occurred over 11 states within this 18 and a half hour period that were, most of them were documented in Blue Book. Um, I also researched and started putting timelines together by working with key witnesses involved in Braxton County who had seen the objects, newspaper articles. Uh, Stan Friedman had supplied um, a lot of newspaper articles from around the United States from private collections. So it's basically uh, compiling, at this point, about 15 years' worth of research into uh, what would thought to be a single incident in Flatwoods. Let, let me throw in here that Frank also was able to get people who had never talked to anybody else, key people, to talk to him. Uh, Colonel Levitt and uh, Stewart, the newsman, these were there then at the time. Now, they never talked to uh, Gray Barker or to any of the other people who wrote stories, uh, books, whatever. And uh, it's important that the new information, which he was able to collect, I mean, they're dead now, so you can't go back and get it again. But uh, it's exciting to throw that into the pot because it gives you a much fuller picture of what went on. And what happened is when I work with these uh, key witnesses, I actually videotape them. So I have their, their testimonies all on videotape which is very important. It's just not hearsay. You're actually hearing it from directly from the witnesses themselves. Now, before we get into the specific testimony and everything, why do you think these people didn't talk about it all these years, knowing that people like Gray Barker and others were coming to Flatwoods to explore this particular case? Why didn't they speak up? Actually, when the, the incident first occurred, Gene, the, the witnesses did speak to several of the investigators. And when the story hit the newswire a couple days later, actually uh, Monday, September 15th, the Flatwoods monster was um, portrayed as a mechanical-type, armor-suited robot creature instead of what is seen of the, the monster with the big red head, with the cloak, with the scary arms and claws. What actually made the story inconsistent 
and for about 50 years afterwards was when Kathleen May, Jean Lemon, uh, two of the primary witnesses, and reporter Stewart were asked to go to New York to be on a, a, a talk show on NBC called We the People. And the sketch artist sat down with the two witnesses, and they gave a description of what they had seen up on the Bailey Fisher farm that night. And the sketch artist actually drew the picture incorrect. He drew his own rendition. And then that's when the press and all the media had a field day with it because it was so ridiculous looking, you know, a, a 10 to 12 foot tall monster roaming through the hills of West Virginia with a cloak and a hood on that was floating. That's when they started getting laughed at. And all the newspapers just ran with it from that point on. And it was made a joke of. And for approximately until I came involved with it, about 40 years after the fact, the people just got quiet because they were tired of being made fools of for all those years. They, they didn't want to be well, laughed at anymore. And Levitt's role wasn't really known to the outside either, Frank, much. Anyway, nobody could ask him anything. <laughs> Right. Colonel Dale Levitt, he was a World War II veteran paratrooper, and he saw action in uh, the Far East and uh, the Philippines. He actually was the commander of the West Virginia National Guard, and he had received a call from Washington that particular night, and he went up onto the Flatwoods Farm with about 50 to 60 troops. There was actually 180 troops, he told me during the interview, that were deployed into Braxton County because there were so many different uh, crashes going around throughout the area and this is what nobody's been able to piece together over the years this was not an isolated incident with one crash that occurred where this monster was seen this stuff was going on all throughout Braxton County, West Virginia and over 11 states uh, Were there similarities in the reports of the <coughs> UFOs that were seen over that 18 hour period or are we talking about different types of objects that were seen? Uh, that particular night, the objects that were seen were uh, mainly round and oval-shaped crafts. There was a couple objects that were seen over um, other states that were the the jet-shaped, uh, you know, like the few look similar to the fuselage of a, of a plane without the wings. There was a few of them, and one saucer sighted over the Ohio and West Virginia area up in the panhandle near Wheeling. So there was about four different type crafts that were actually seen that night over 18 and a half hours. Several of them were... But they were all meteors, Frank. Right. The, the, <laughs> official, the official Project Blue Book conclusion was it was a meteor seen for five to six seconds that flew over the Washington area. When I looked a little bit deeper into it, I actually found a New York Times article from the following day that called this object the flame over Washington. And what I did is I followed the flight path trajectory of this thing through newspaper articles and Project Blue Book was a gold mine stand. Actually, they gave the majority of the evidence right there. And I followed the flight path trajectory and Flatwoods is 206 miles due west of Washington. And this object that was supposedly seen for five to six seconds actually flew for a half an hour after it passed over Washington and landed in Flatwoods. Was there any uh, description of contrails or any anything like that that would have 
had people potentially claim that this thing was some kind of a meteor? Actually, there was over 20 UFOs sighted that night. Uh, a bunch of them had flames coming off of them, pieces chunking off of them, hitting the ground. These things were on fire, falling apart, and there was actually several of them that actually made repeated landings, unlike a meteor would do. They were landing, puddle jumping, taking off, exploding, pieces falling off of them, and they were doing this throughout the United States. One actually landed in the area of Arcadia, Tennessee, just short of the area of uh, Oak Ridge. It actually flew approximately 100 miles through the no-fly zone. And the other two objects crashed in West Virginia and made repeated landings. And what I did is I worked with a gigantic master map about six by seven feet. And over the years, every time I got another piece of information, I would plot the points similar like you would see in the detective movies when they're looking for a murderer or something. They have this big map and they put the pinpoints in it. Well, that's what I did over the course of 12 years. I thought I had everything found to the point that Stanton Friedman got involved and he got me several more pieces of information. So I went back in and I filled in the dots in between and I linked all these trajectories closer together. I was able to figure out the flight paths and actually what occurred that evening within minutes. It was well documented, Gene. This this case was never looked into as, as heavily as, as till I got involved in it and Stan got involved. There was a lot going on that night. These objects were seen by tens of thousands of people across the United States. And something that Stan brought up to me a few years ago as I was writing, he said that we think of the media today with Internet and within seconds you find out what's going on around the world. Back then it was newspaper accounts. Some people did didn't even know what was going on in the city next to him, let alone in the 11 surrounding states. And that's what uh, Stanton and I actually did. We pieced this gigantic 18 and a half hour scenario together. And Flatwoods was actually towards the end of the story. What occurred before was the interesting part. Okay, now you're telling us here that the interesting stuff came before Flatwoods. So what is more interesting than some kind of creature that seems to be floating? There was other things that happened at night that also involved creatures. There was one that was found up in the wheeling area. And that case wasn't too well known. They actually called it Bashful Billy, and it was an, uh, a, a, something like a reptilian alien that was found dead on the outskirts of a small community near Wheeling, West Virginia. That also occurred that night. And then we have the Flatwoods case. The following night, there was also another incident that occurred in Frametown, which is about 17 miles away. And it was the last area where I had actually tracked the flight path when this Flatwoods monster left Flatwoods. It flew across the county and it landed in Frametown. And there was an encounter with a young family where they actually saw this reptilian-type creature in a, a similar-type spacesuit to what was seen the night before. 
which was actually um, a metallic suit. It was a hovercraft. Okay, so what was the Flatwoods monster? Was it a monster? Was it a creature? What was it? When Mrs. May and Lemon and Stewart went on a national TV show, this is basically how it was explained to me. This is what Kathleen May told me. A sketch artist sat down with her and Lemon. He said, what did this thing look like? And they were trying to describe this thing that looked almost robotic in nature. It was close to 12 foot tall. It was made out of metal. It had um, an Ace of Spades type helmet over the top of its head. The head was actually a round round object with two portholes. Freddie May told me that he believed something was inside of it, that this was actually some type of a small shuttlecraft. The lower half, um, when Mrs. May spoke to the sketch artist, she was trying to describe pipes that were going around uh, vertically around the lower circumference of the body. And the illustrator actually drew pleats like dress, like a, a robe or a dress. And that's how she was explaining it to him. She had no way of conveying her message. And she said, well, the lower half of this looked like the drapes in my living room, like the pleats. What she was actually describing were pipes. And this is where the emission came out. It was some type of a propulsion system. And Freddie May told me, uh, he was a witness, he saw this from about 30 feet away. This was Kathleen's uh, son. He said these pipes were about as thick as a fireman's hose, something about the, as thick as your arm. And this is what actually was botched up in the translation why this monster was drawn in a dress. It had a hood over the top of its head in the drawing. It was actually a helmet. The arms and claws that were represented by the original illustrator were actually some type of antennas coming off of the shoulder area. And nobody could understand why this thing, you could actually see in the, the original drawings that this thing floated. There's a drop cast shadow about a foot to a foot and a half underneath it floating. Nobody could figure why a monster was floating. It was part of the propulsion system that elevated this thing and lifted it off the ground. This was the sulfur type smell that all the witnesses got sick from and were vomiting from it. it was, their noses were bleeding from this. That's what it actually was. We should explain too that, you know, the uh, explanation from the debunkers or deniers is pretty interesting. It was a six foot tall owl that Frank was describing. Doesn't that sound like what? We all know about six foot tall owls. Uh, That's actually me. That's what they call me because I have this website, the Mac Knight Owl, and therefore Ooh. I'm a six foot two inch owl. Oh, well. Well, this one's one like nobody has ever seen before, and that's really a hoot. <laughs> also, we, we need the larger context here, too. Most people are aware that the summer of 52 was a big year for UFOs. Blue Book's biggest year in terms of number of sightings reported to them, well over 1,500. So this was part of a much larger collection of events that went on that summer. You could call the movie the, the summer of 52. July had the big press conferences, but things didn't stop in July. And so a lot of people were so busy with what else was going on, like the uh, UFOs sighted over Washington, D.C., that this became sort of a sideshow off to the side rather than part of this larger picture. And, you know, for most people who aren't as old as I am, they weren't around at that time, so what the heck? Uh, whoever heard of Flatwoods and what difference does it make? Well, 
it was in a way a culmination of something else. Uh, what Frank uh, and I found was that the uh, orders had been given to shoot down UFOs if they didn't land when instructed to do so. We have that in print, quotes from military people in 52, mind you. And we have a general saying that oh, we scrambled jets hundreds of times. Well, part of what Frank is describing seems to be UFOs that were attacked, wounded. How would you describe it, Frank? Shot at? <laughs> yeah, there were several damaged ones that night that were seen. And then there were several other that also came in on September 12th looking for these down crafts. And the interesting part is is the flight path trajectories where these three damaged objects came over within minutes at uh, 7 o'clock that night. That was Eastern Standard Time. And the first object came over the coast and it actually went on a southwest trajectory, flew across the United States, it was uh, seen over Virginia, Tennessee, and fell short just of Oak Ridge National Laboratory where it landed. It turned away at that point. The second one flew in and flew over Baltimore, Maryland, and went on a northwest heading. And it was making a beeline dead course for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The third object flew over Washington. When that third object flew over Washington, that was what was called by the press the flame over Washington. It actually flew in and buzzed the Capitol area. These objects were seen at certain points of their trajectories at treetop levels uh, with pieces falling off of them. The third one that flew over Washington was not intercepted and not touched, which was very odd under the circumstances. You're not supposed to fly over that area. That's a restricted zone. And when and it actually passed over that area and headed west of the capital area, those other two objects actually turned away from their targets, which were Oak Ridge and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And if you look on a map, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is dead situated above to the north of Oak Ridge. So when you look at all of these points, it was actually a triangulation where Washington, Wright-Patterson, and Oak Ridge are. None of these objects were intercepted once they were over the United States. There was another factor here. One thing Frank found was that the F-94Cs had new weapon systems on them, the Mighty Mouse little rockets, so they weren't just machine guns, they and they were, could be far uh, more devastating. The Navy also had them, Stanton, and uh, the F-86D Sabre jet, they were uh, 2.75-inch rockets, there was 24 of them, and they, each jet had a different way of launching them, but they traveled 1,500 feet per second, and they had a 7-pound warhead on them. They could be launched in pairs or they could be launched all 24 at once. But these jets were only around the Washington area, the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast. We always kept our best jets around the Washington. These jets did not serve, these particular uh, rocket-bearing jets did not serve in Korea during that time for fear they would fall into communist hands. So that's one thing that the military people I always worked with said, you keep your best weapons around Washington to protect the capital. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com. 
and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we have Frank Ficino Jr. and Stanton Friedman. And by the way, they've both worked on a book called Shoot 'em Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. And what we're alluding to now as we kind of segue away from Flatwoods is the overall orders, apparently, uh, to shoot down UFOs and the consequences. David, you had a question. Yeah, actually, I don't want to segue away from Flatwoods yet, and I think it ties into the topic of um, potentially shooting down craft. Two things. The description of this uh, creature being robot from Flatwoods seemed to be fairly unique in the history of UFO lore. Uh, have either of you gentlemen discovered anything even remotely, vaguely similar to this that's been described before or after? That's question number one. Question number two, in terms of UFOs potentially being shot down, this is going to be a big question, but we know from certainly contemporary reports that military airplanes seem to have a problem with their power systems when confronting craft. Were there any similar reports at the time of, of planes being affected in this way that you've uncovered in your investigation? On, the, on a particular Flatwoods evening? Overall, actually. Overall, yeah, there, there's been several cases throughout the years, and there's several incidents that I started researching with Stan Friedman where jets were vanishing between 51 and 56, and that was like the key point during these shoot-down orders, which is well-documented, where there was hundreds of, of jets around the United States and the world that were vanishing and crashing and unexplained mysteries. The New York Times had over 200 incidents of military aircraft crashing between 1951 and 56. Right. And uh, with words like disappeared and disintegrated, and many of these were piloted by very experienced pilots. You know, you wouldn't be surprised if it was a newcomer just learning how to fly and stuff, but a lot of these guys had served in World War II, and a lot of them had served doing more than 100 missions, mind you, in Korea, where they were, in both instances, being shot at by enemy aircraft. So you got really good experience pilots and they come back well, to the United States and they crash. Well, what I found out there was actually, um, just to give you a, a small case study of nine particular combat veterans fighters who fought in World War II in Korea, both between 32 and 182 combat missions. And what I did stand is I combined these statistics together. This is just nine guys, 885 total combat missions. All of these guys died over the United States. Most of them, they were said to have died on routine training missions, 
They ran out of gas. Unknown causes. They had no idea. There was uh, no reason for these men to have crashed. These are all quotes from the New York Times. There was actually four combat jet aces who fought in World War II in Korea who came back stateside in the, in the Korean instances, and these guys either vanished or, or just crashed for unknown reasons. They're talking guys, you know, all, all um, the one guy in particular, 10 MiG kills, 328 combat hours in Korea in World War II, and he comes back and his plane mysteriously crashes. But when I started working with Stanton, we started putting together areas where UFO sightings actually occurred right in the same areas where these planes were vanishing and going down. That's what triggered off several years of research, which the new book Shoot on Down is about. Okay, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, guys who would distinguish flying crosses, 6 mm -hmm. clusters, you know, I mean, these mm -hmm. are heavy hitter guys. And these guys are just dropping out of the sky and vanishing. Now, were there correlations between these planes going down and vanishing and specific engagements with UFOs and or UFO sightings reported by people on the ground? The sightings were, were made, recorded by Project Blue Book and several uh, past investigators. But not all these reports went to Blue Book. Blue Book recorded several of them, and that's what I started doing is, is cross-referencing and where these planes were disintegrating and where they were going down and all this weird stuff was going on with these combat um, fighter guys. Um, there were UFO sightings right in the area, some of them within minutes. Mm -hmm. The government is, has never told us, oh, by the way, folks, we lost a lot of airplanes to... Uh, UFOs because of that order. Uh, incidentally, as a sidelight, the head of the American Rocket Society, a guy named Farnsworth, wrote President Truman saying he didn't think it was a good idea to have an order that says shoot them down if they don't land when in instructed to do so. So, you know, there's a hidden war here, I think. And for those who are listening or being a bit skeptical, come on, we couldn't, these couldn't have been shot down by UFOs. Uh, we'd have heard about it. Their families would have heard about it. Well, let me point out to people that there were 166 crew members of a bunch of military reconnaissance planes that were, oh, I love the expression, tickling North Korea, China, and Russia back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, mostly before we had satellites. This is the kind of tickling uh, where they don't laugh. <laughs> well, yeah, they, the idea was to get the uh, enemy's radar to come on so you could monitor its character characteristics, what its response rate was, what frequencies they were using, pulse width, all that sort of stuff. And of course, sometimes we strayed over that 12-mile or 3-mile limit, and the people on the other end destroyed our airplanes. Now, the funny part is, of course, that there wasn't one word in public about the loss of any of these planes. Families were all lied to. Unfortunate accident, plane went down at sea, no bodies recovered, even though we knew that the Russians had gotten a number of military guys who had parachuted uh, over enemy land, so to speak. They finally called a conference in the year 2001, 50 years later than some of these things happened, of the military families and gave the families medals for the heroism of their sons or brothers or 
whatever they were. And this is recorded in an excellent book, uh, By Any Means Necessary, by William Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-W-S. And so I, I want to stress that there was a policy of not admitting certain plane losses because of what they would reveal about what we were doing. And certainly you might have trouble getting pilots to go up and chase a UFO if they found out, oh yeah, the last three guys we sent up <laughs> got splattered across the landscape, guys. thought you ought to know that. That wasn't the policy. So there's a deeper picture here that we need to be aware of, uh, a long history of misrepresentation about what happened to guys over various countries. What's even uh, more interesting, man, is when I went through this, what I call the Exodus chapter in my book called The Six Deadly Years between 51 and 56, I found that the New York Times had recorded 26 incidents where fighters vanished off the face of the earth. These guys went up. Several of them also, Stanton, as you well know, were combat veterans. And this accounted for more than 40 airmen that disappeared. Out of these planes, these fighters, four of them, I'm going to state, were trainers. They were fighter trainers. So when you break those numbers down, you, you know, you're still talking a lot of fighter jets that disappeared. Um, actually, over the United States, there were 19 that disappeared over that six-year period. And that accounted for 35 airmen. That's still a high number as far as I'm concerned or any veteran you would talk to. So at this point, 35 vanished airmen over the United States never found. And what's interesting, I've talked with Stanton about on several occasions when these jets would go down, some of them were crashing into cities, major cities and towns, wiping out portions of uh, buildings, killing people. And when one of these jets goes down, you know about it. In one particular case in Long Island, a jet, a thunder jet hit into a populated area and it actually launched an automobile three city blocks across the town. When they go down, they make 12 to 20 foot impacts. They inflame the town. People are killed. Not in the case of these other 26 incidents. And actually, there was actually in those 26 vanished incidents, there was 29 aircraft. The one involved three aircraft that disappeared one particular incident. Let's step back from this a moment. We have an Air Force policy that says, attempt to communicate with these craft, demand that they land. If they don't land, shoot them down. Now, that begs a few questions. A, why were they giving these orders? What was it that they knew or were looking to find out that made them give these orders? B, do we assume that they had had success commanding one of these craft to land? And that then spawned this order that if they don't land, shoot them down? That's an well, interesting question. Basically, it was if, if they don't reply, if you can't talk them down, shoot them down. And if, right. if these extraterrestrials or whoever are piloting these flying saucers, UFOs, didn't speak in English, to basically it's shoot first and ask questions later. That's right. the way I right. interpret it. <laughs> And they weren't taking any chances back then. The Stanton could talk, he's a little bit more in depth about the details of the Cold War and what was going on, how the Russians, uh, they were, the United States was anticipating Russia to drop bombs on us. So the country was in a frenzy back then. So if you pick something up, a bleep on a radar, you went after that target. And once you got up into the air, was this thing a uh, flying saucer or a Russian bomber? Because not all of these uh, sightings, these things were flying thousands of, of miles an hour. Some 
some of them were slow moving, so the president couldn't take the chance of, oh, we're, we'll scramble every other one, or we think this. They were right. scrambling. And Keogh actually stated in a True Magazine article on uh, December 52, he was told there were over, up to that point, 300 different times, at least 300 different scrambles. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of scrambles up to 52. Let me, let me ask you about the line of demarcation here, and that is, okay, we have these crashes, and I'm not going to say it was because of the lowest bidder and because that gets to be a little bit <laughs> a little bit dismissive of it. I don't know. What I'm asking you is where do we connect the crash of a jet aircraft with the presence of a UFO and the possibility that the UFO, the occupants, whatever, had some responsibility for it? I need to point out that I have had seven different stories told me independently, all of them, about more planes going up after a UFO than came back down. So we have some evidence from people who were involved, not the pilots that were destroyed, obviously, <laughs> but uh, in one case, for example, at Boca Chica, the nearest listening NSA listening post to Cuba, Cuban MiG case, where uh, a saucer was heading toward Cuba from the northeast at uh, 30,000 feet, Mach 1, picked up by the Cuban radar. Our guys are listening to all the military communications. They were all linguists. They spoke Russian, Spanish, and English. And the Cuban Air Defense Command scrambles a couple of jets, tells them to chase away, in effect, the UFO. They go up, they spot them, they report to the ground and our listening post that uh, it's a spherical object with no appendages. This is broad daylight. They did whatever they're supposed to do to tell them to get the heck away from Cuba and nothing happened. So the ground instructs them, shoot them down. So the lead pilot, there were two, a pilot and a wingman, arms his missile, gets his radar lock on, on, and you tell all this to the ground. And then suddenly the second pilot screams over the airwaves at the first plane just to center. And the UFO went straight up to 90,000 feet instead of 30,000 and headed southeast at Mach several. And part of the rest of the story is that the uh, NSA guys were instructed to send the original tape. Normally, they just send a timeline and a transcript. Who said what at this time, this time? The guy I was talking to was one of the guys listening to this stuff, and he said that was very unusual to be asked for the tape. And also they were got feedback that you're supposed to keep track of enemy plane losses for obvious reasons. You know, maybe they got bad engines or whatever. And uh, list the cause of the plane crash as equipment malfunction, which I always thought was funny. If your plane disintegrates, I guess your equipment malfunctions. But I've heard seven stories like this, of which obviously can't be all the events that ever happened. I mean, just lucky to be in the right place at the right time for somebody who'd heard me speak and wanted to relieve himself of this dead story. So that's a prelude, in effect, to, hey, what could be happening here in 52? And I do want to stress that it may seem strange to people now, but in Washington, they were actively expecting Soviets to attack while Stalin was still alive. And one of the scary document I've seen at the 20 archives I've been to was one from a minutes of a National Security Council meeting in which it was stated in 51 that the Russians had made more progress in the development of nuclear weapons. The first one wasn't exploded until August 49, after all. And methods for delivering them in the past 18 months than had been anticipated for five years. With the U.S. being tied down in Korea, there were many people in Washington who expected the 
Soviets would use their atomic bombs to attack the U.S. Remember, Stalin had trusted Hitler. Bad mistake. Uh, he wasn't trusting anybody. And remember that the Ground Observer Corps was that we did not have adequate radar coverage. We were scrambling like mad to get it up there because we didn't realize that we needed it, that the Russians had means for delivering atomic bombs. Under 5,000 so, 5, feet was the radar. Well, it, it, they, it they weren't able to time. track under 5,000 feet. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Stanton Friedman and Frank Faschino talking first about the Flatwoods Monster and then segueing, and maybe it's not much of a segue, to the subjects dealt with in this new book called Shoot Him Down, the Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. And I'm wondering here, I can understand the paranoia, and I was around but very, very young, so I didn't understand it then, but extremely, extremely young. I'm not that old, although David, of course, doesn't agree with me about that. But uh. <laughs> you see what I mean, ladies and gentlemen? No respect, no respect at all. But okay, I didn't know then, but certainly we had reason to be paranoid about things in our skies, especially during the height of the Cold War. Justified. On the other hand, if I were piloting an alien craft and the people who occupy the planet I'm visiting are just shooting at me, you know, would I ignore that or would I shoot back? And maybe we could assume some of these planes that disappeared were the result of retaliatory action, but certainly we could have also started an interstellar war if these were ETs. I don't think we worried about that. They'd been around for a while. We had to defend our country, and also another reason for shooting at them was to get the technology, recover the wreckage. You know, we were desperate to get better means of carrying nuclear weapons and defending against those who might carry them toward us. And again, that's part of that picture that they'd made more progress in methods for delivering the nuclear weapons than had been anticipated. So it, it's a complicated kind of business, and it was never discussed in public. Remember, this is before the Robertson panel, which was early 53, CIA and, you know, calling together, what should we do about all this? But this was, without a question, a serious military problem. I better throw in here a story that extends the concern. I did an article in the MUFON Journal about Shoot Them Down, 
And I get a call from a guy who's had some articles in himself, and he said, Stan, I just read your article, and I have to tell you that in the early 50s, a classmate of mine from Purdue University who had gone over as a pilot to Europe, flying over Germany and so forth, came back and we met at a uh, Purdue event, and he told me, I didn't get much information out of him, but he told me that we lost 20 planes to UFOs over there. And he's gone, but I have located his wife and his son, and I'm trying to get them to dig out records so I know what group he was in. And Tim Good's new book also talks about plane losses in Europe. So we're dealing with a, a an uncovered area here. This will be the first book that really digs into this over the states. You know, there's another aspect, too. It is standard practice for anybody who's worried about an enemy, whether it's the United States worrying about Russia, let's say, to try to find out as much as possible about the performance of their aircraft so we can be ready to counter the counter, the counter weapon, you know, all this kind of thing. And one of the things here, again, is that aliens presumably would like to get home, too, so they'd like to know what the capabilities of our aircraft are. And you've heard, all of us have heard stories about jets chasing UFOs and the UFO goes faster and faster and faster and outspeeds the plane. Well, that tells you the maximum speed for the aircraft. And also you want to find out what its turning radius is and what kind of electronics, what kind of radar system is it putting out that you could jam, let's say. And weapon uh, system as well, if they're well, firing yeah. at them. And you know, so, how far do those bullets and rockets go? Yeah, so you'd expect that the aliens would want that same information and would tickle the aircraft, if you want to put it that way. And so part of the handbook, what's the capability of the locals? And, uh, you know, be wary. they got a new rocket on board those airplanes. They've got a new electronic system. Uh, they've changed the frequency. You know, all kinds of military objectives would have to be taken into account here because things were changing rapidly. New planes were being introduced, new weapon systems, new radar systems. So any sensible alien is going to try to make sure that he can get home if possible, avoid the locals, get your data, but stay out of range. But you've got to find out what the range of their systems is before you can do that. Um, well, Gene and, and, and David, there's one thing I, I want to jump in here real quick. While we were, uh, there's a little piece of uh, history here that Stan was the first one I actually called, and it, I, I found this piece of information in a book. And if you give me a minute, I'm going to read this quote to you, and this is one of the points that got me really involved with this. It's been out there uh, since the 50s, this particular quote, and it seems everybody went right by it. I'm going to read this to you quick. Other his assorted historians point out that the UFOs are peaceful. Gorman and Mantell just got too inquisitive. They just weren't ready to be observed closely. If the Air Force hadn't slapped down the security lid, these writers might not have reached this conclusion. There have been other and more lurid duels of death. And that quote came from Edward Rupelt's book in 1956. Well, let's talk about this for a minute, though, because we have this six, seven-year period where we presumably have a number of planes being shot down by UFOs, and this is Air Force policy is for these pilots to engage the UFOs, and if they don't land, shoot them down. Now, this still brings me back to the original question I don't think I really got the answer to, 
which was what created the formation of this policy? Did they actually have success in getting a couple of these craft to land? And then also, as, as a corollary to that, what exactly was it that then all of a sudden made things, I guess, change in 1956? We have this concentration of episodes that occurred in these six, seven years. Do we see a very precipitous drop-up of planes being shot down after 1956? What happened then? I think the press just stopped reporting on it because what I found through the, the New York Times, uh, and once again, I've spoke with Stanton uh, at length about this. Back then, in the area 50, the 51 era, these were gigantic front page articles. Um, some of them actually had photographs of, of these jets crashed and vanished, war heroes, you know, the whole ball of wax, in-depth stories. And then I would go to 52, 3, 4, 5, 6. By the time I started getting into the 56 era, these uh, there were still major stories, like five jets all crashed at the same time. And these articles were like two-liners stuck in the back of the, uh, the Reeds and Gimbel's bra ads on page 200 in the New York Times. So as, as I was going along, these major articles became smaller and smaller and smaller. They got stuck in the back of the paper instead of being front line front front page articles they weren't up front anymore and and as you and they were still major stories but they weren't reported as 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 much stories in in depth we do have precedent for the united states government instructing the news media to cool it on certain stories during world war ii for example two that come to mind were the effects if any of the japanese fugo balloons there was no coverage after a certain point so the japanese Japanese wouldn't know whether they had done any good. The idea was to start fires and uh, kill people and whatever. Big forests out west. And actually some people did die who fooled around with one of these packages. But the word was out, thou shalt not cover that. Secondly, uh, General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project, read the riot act to editors about ever mentioning uranium because of the atomic bomb project. He didn't give the uh, editors uh, any details on why not, but it was policy. So I can see where the Air Force might have uh, squeezed the press a bit not to make too much of a fuss about the uh, plane losses, even though they wouldn't have told them, oh, by the way, they, they were shot down by flying saucers. You can imagine what the response to that would have been. <laughs> it would have been chaos, obviously. So, yeah. In other words, what, what I'm saying is, again, the larger picture here of government policies that we know about, just like keeping down the deaths, keeping quiet about the deaths of the reconnaissance planes. And so people tend to be a bit naive about this. Oh, the government wouldn't do that. I I've heard people say things like that. Well, they did do it, not once, many times. If we assume that containment is an issue, when we talk about the um, events that surround this, uh, the, the, the Flatwood Monster incident, we have craft disintegrating, dropping pieces, presumably dropping pieces while they're flying. We also have this idea that jets should shoot down UFOs, and there's the potential of these things exploding in air and pieces going all over the place. Were there any reports of people getting these pieces, and why would they have such a policy? In, in Flatwoods, there was uh, pieces retrieved. 
Um, there was metal retrieved. Um, Colonel Levin actually found a piece of metal, and he sent it up to uh, Washington. And as far as I know, the largest piece of metal was actually found by Ailey Stewart, Jr. It was approximately one by three inches, and it was confiscated from him the day before he went on national television, what I said earlier on the We the People show. Um, it was stolen from his house. And he told me it looked like a gigantic piece of drip solder. It was found in the field. And it was kind of interesting that he actually said that they took this piece and they put it in a vice and a gas station and put uh, two gasoline blow torches on it. And it would not melt. It was melted already, but it would not further melt. But it was able to be cut in half with a pair of tin snips. And it was also reported black plastic-like um, material was found all over the farm, um, and it was picked up by the locals. And there were pieces of metal and an oily substance was found splattered all over the, the farm. And it, it's well known that intelligence was in Flatwoods. Keogh wrote about it in his book, uh, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, in depth. And when I spoke to some of the witnesses, they told me that intelligence officers were, officers were there in Flatwoods, and they were uh, grabbing up whatever they can get their hands on and, and bringing it back with them. They, they didn't want any evidence left on the farm, and there was a lot of it. So um, how many people out there do have pieces of metal, we don't know. Because there was an estimated 10,000 people went into the town of Flatwoods within the first five to six weeks of the incident. And uh, this whole incident actually happened throughout the farm. The craft landed on a high point in the back of the property. There was pieces found up there relocated into a gully. And then this uh, 12-foot-tall so-called monster came out, and it was dripping oil, an oil-like substance, I should say. And there were pieces of this black plastic-like material and metal strewn throughout the farm. So it wasn't just one little area. This stuff was all over the place, and when the people came came up the following morning, they grabbed a lot of this stuff. Colonel Levitt was up there that evening, but he was very limited because it, it was dark. He came well after midnight by the time he got up to the farm with his troops. And the following day is when Stewart actually found the metal. It was that chunk, and it was found in the path where that was made by the monster as it pushed through the field. And um, it was also reported, you know, several people found pieces of stuff. Where most of this is now, we don't know. We'd like to hear from anybody who does right. know. And right. I've got a website, uh, com, which has an address and phone numbers and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I know where I can get stuff analyzed, and we don't use witness names without permission. But if somebody's got a piece of stuff that Grandpa said he found over there after that Flatwoods case, so we'd sure like to hear about it. And Frank has a website, too. Frank, what's your website address? www.flatwoodsmonster.com. And that's where the new book could be purchased as well. And, so we'll have, by the way, links to both sites at theparacast.com. We have just a moment or two for this part of the show. David, you wanted to add something before we have our hourly break? Yeah, well, if we have all of this stuff that was floating around, figuratively, literally speaking, 
and all of these people are grabbing it, it, it does seem a little odd that in all these years, and even right after the fact, uh, that none of this has surfaced. It, it just seems weird, given that you've got, like you're saying, this black plastic material all over the forest. Do you guys have any thoughts about why none of this stuff has potentially surfaced? Because of the attitude, the laughter curtain, as I keep calling it, the tone at that area was you really didn't want to talk about this because this was these dumb uh, West Virginia hillbillies kind of stuff, and you talked about anything you'd get laughed at. Who needs it? Look, even in my audiences at colleges and so forth, uh, only about 10% of the people will raise their hand at the end of my lecture when I ask how many people here believe they've seen what I would describe as a flying saucer, and I've given my definition earlier on. Then I ask, that's 10%, that's a lot of people, but then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. And so uh, you can understand that the, the people up there weren't going to talk, especially to outsiders. And when they hear stories about uh, being visited by intelligence people, they really didn't want any part of it. Well, you know, Stan, we can pursue this on the second part of the show. But okay. one of the things, of course, is that today there is no Project Blue Book or official place in the government to report UFO cases. We can go into that in a moment. And this ends our first part of the show, the PowerCast. And we've been featuring Frank Fraschino Jr. and Stanton Friedman. Frank's the author of Shoot Them Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. And you can take that phrase, shoot them down, literally. The PowerCast returns in a moment. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the PowerCast, we're talking to Frank Fischino, Jr. and Stanton Friedman. And we're talking about the Flatwoods Monster, about a book called Shoot Them Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. One concern I keep having about Flatwoods is the uniqueness of the experience, which is we have the Flatwoods Monster living in its own universe. There's no other creature report that I know of, which may not be a lot, you know, ladies and gentlemen. But are there other cases anywhere that even closely duplicate it? Not that I know of. You have the Pascagoula case where an entity was seen floating, but it didn't resemble anything like the Flatwoods Monster. Not that I know of. Maybe this was their first trip, and after what happened that night, I wouldn't have come back either. <laughs> no, I, I know of no other cases like this. I think that well, if we look at this, stand back a little bit, it seems that there's a large-scale surveillance going on. You know, we have these huge motherships with dozens, each of them, of little Earth excursion modules, as I like to call them. There's an orchestrated effort here. These aren't guys who get blown by the winds and, oh, there's a nice planet, why don't we check it out? This is an organized effort over a period of time to systematically examine the planet, the people, maybe the animals, the fauna, the flora, whatever. And they would change their procedures, but it appears that this was a system that didn't work. Remember, the United States had this huge B-36, for example, and 
That was abandoned. The B-58 was abandoned after not too long because, you know, you review the operating procedures and the best uses of these things, and you finally say, yeah, that's not the right system for our purpose. You got anything else in the pipeline? Well, I think the aliens would do the same thing. They'd be checking us out and reviewing their own procedures. You have to assume a certain amount of flexibility for an advanced civilization uh, stopping by. And I know this bothers some people when I say things like that, but because they'd like to think that there aren't many civilizations out there. Uh, after all, we would have picked up their radio signals if there were, you know, that, that nonsensical kind of approach. And maybe, maybe it's a good place to illustrate what the problem is. Uh, a German general in 1938, before they invaded Europe and, and England and so forth, was informed that the British were building these tall towers more than 200 feet high with crossbars on them. Now, being a general who was very sharp, he said, look, we Germans are working on radar. These must be radar towers. We need to find out what frequencies, what their capabilities are. So they flew, of all things, the Graf Zeppelin. So they flew slowly over the English Channel, past all of these towers, listening, listening, listening. You know what? They didn't hear anything. And they did it a second time, staying over the water until the end of the second trip. Then there was an international incident, and the word was, well, our craft just got blown off course. We weren't trying to invade England or whatever. Where have we heard this blowing off course stuff before? But anyway, and again, they didn't hear anything. And they concluded and thought so for the whole war, that the Brits didn't have radar, which, of course, they did. And they picked up all these things. Their frequency was 10 times higher than the Germans were using. So the notion that we would have any way of picking up these wonderful radio signals from distant civilizations, trying to attract our attention, and we know what frequencies to listen to and so forth, it's pretty darn silly. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there are civilizations all over the place out there. We're the Johnny-come-latelys in the group, that being the real thing, that we've only had civilization for a short period of time compared to the history of the planet. Well, you know, Not Stan, just to interrupt you, some people feel we still don't have civilization. Well, yeah, there is a legitimate question. Is there intelligent life on Earth? <laughs> I'm not asking that one today. <laughs> No, well, I, I agree with you. Along that thread, though, so we have the Air Force implementing policy to shoot down craft. Do we assume at some point, if there isn't a tremendous amount of success in that policy, that the airport would rescind that policy? Yes. Uh, I talked to one of my seven cases involved a guy who was at a radar facility in Kalispell, Montana, in the early 50s. And they got a call from uh, Canadian observers that there was a saucer heading their way. They happened to have a jet in the air, and so they vectored him in. I got this from the guy who was at the radar set. And McMinnville, Oregon, incidentally, he worked at the college I was speaking at, and he asked me to talk to him off in the corner kind of thing. They vectored our jet toward the UFO. We're watching this on the radar screen. The two blended together, and they never saw the jet again. They knew exactly what altitude, what direction, what speed. They found no wreckage, nothing. But, he told me, after that, the word was, take pictures, do not shoot. So maybe somebody wised up. Uh, that may have been one of the better cases where they actually observed what was going on, you know, on the radaring stuff. So, 
you know, we have, what's his name, Fawcett out there now that they're looking for his plane Steve uh, Fawcett, over yeah. this huge area. Mm-hmm. And we haven't been able to find him. But in this case that I'm talking about, they were vectoring the pilot toward the unknown. They knew exactly what direction he was going. Should have been able to find wreckage. Never was, he said. Yeah, well, but there's a relevant point that needs to be brought up now that you've brought up the uh, the faucet thing, and that in searching for him, they didn't find him, but they did indeed yeah. find the remains of about eight other crashed aircraft in the yeah. process of looking for him. So there is a possibility that a number of these planes went down and are down somewhere. We just haven't found them yet. That is a possibility, right? Right, but, but when who, I researched, none that. of these planes have been found as of we speak right now. Mm-hmm. And some of them are actually over the Washington and Virginia area and overpopulated cities. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if three uh, F-86 Sabre jets are flying over Virginia, Washington, D.C., and they fly into clouds and they vanish, where did they go? If uh, three jets crashed in Virginia in the city, we would have absolutely seen them. We would have known about them. We're not saying that all of these jets that disappeared or went down were the result of encounters with UFOs. Right, right. But I found several of them where UFOs were seen in the area with when these jets were seen and with, you know, with the proximity. We need to stress how hard it is to get accident reports. Uh, believe it or not, obviously they investigate all these cases, but as is reported in the book, Sometimes the investigations are pretty shoddy, and there's gross inconsistencies, and other times, I mean, I was at the National Archives, and our missing case files, they're numbered, you know, then we skip the case here, skip the case there. Interestingly enough, men, is when Stanton was going through the accident reports for the United States Air Force for the year 1952, there was one particular month that there was not even a shred of evidence or a document, and it was September 1952. Yeah, interesting. There were no results, and that was at the point of the, during the Flatwoods case. Hmm. Well, so you've got a situation, though, where these uh, Air Force pilots have the orders to shoot these craft down. Presumably, the orders would include that if you're over a populated area, don't shoot them down then because we can't do containment, right? Don't know. You know, the military is pretty good at containing things. You always have the excuse that there's secret gear on board this craft. You've set up their procedures for recovery of classified systems. You know, standard practice. Uh, you, we know that there are spies around. So if something with a uh, top secret bomb site or new electronics or anything like that, you certainly have a good excuse, the military does, to put up a periphery, you know, protect the stuff and cart away whatever's there without the public being told anything useful. You know, just an unfortunate accident with government equipment, and we have a need to protect the integrity of the designs and so forth and so on. They're good at lying about things like that. Yeah, but you can't shoot a craft down over a city because if the craft goes down the city, you're going to have a hard time containing a UFO that's crashed into an apartment building, I would imagine. I remember an airplane crashing into an apartment building in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Yeah, what a mess it made. Yeah, I actually watched an airplane. Uh, I watched a fighter jet crashed into an apartment building in Caracas, Venezuela in 1974. It wasn't a pretty sight. But still, I have to assume then, or is it safe to make the assumption that these pilots were perhaps told 
shoot aircraft down, but not if you find yourself over a major city. And uh, sort of in conjunction with that, now that we have governments like the French government, the British government releasing a tremendous amount of their documentation of their own official UFO reports. Do we see well, any correlation in that stuff? I, I would uh, take issue with that a bit. Many people have overstated what was released by the French and the English. There's no top secret material there. Uh, in the U.S., remember, you can get 92 reels of Project Blue Book files, an enormous amount of information, 13,000 cases. Those are available. But we also know that General Carol Bolander said that reports of UFOs, which could affect national security, would continue to be made uh, using JNAP-146 and Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. And he repeated that when he said uh, if uh, Blue Book is closed, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the regulations established for that purpose. I located General Bolander, that stated 1969, incidentally, and uh, there's no question what he was talking about. Military, the best military cases didn't go to Project Blue Book. And so we have a secret world out there, and that's not being paranoid to say that. If any newsman wanted to jump into the UFO question, there's a, certainly a place to to start. Where the heck are all those reports? You know, they're the most interesting ones, aren't they? If a saucer goes down the runway at a sack base, and I've heard about that, where nuclear weapons are stored, uh, that's a national security program. That's not just a, a problem. That's not just a, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we knew what was happening with these interesting UFOs? That's national security. I'm sitting here on the British Ministry of Defense Department's website looking at a variety of uh, declassified Rendlesham Forest reports that indeed are marked top secret, and where Rendlesham Forest was an area where there is indeed, to my understanding, some nuclear weapons being stored. So yes, indeed, there were. right. So here we've got a declassified report that was presumably top secret. Uh, Why do you presume top secret? Wait, 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 wait. Does it say top secret crossed out? Actually, a couple of these do. Yeah. So uh, the uh, ones that I'm looking at online, yeah, some of them do. So I'm just wondering about that, where we know that Rendlesham was a highly unusual case. That I mean, if they were going to keep stuff that was potentially sensitive under wraps, certainly one could surmise that Rendlesham Forest would be an excellent target for that. Rendlesham, they should never have acknowledged that it happened at all. When we look at the reports of Rendlesham Forest, we have everything over three nights from craft landing to supposedly beings interacting with the military. So presumably this would be a great case to completely squelch, but there's a bunch of documentation available. I'm just wondering again about you know, the possibility it that... It got out and nothing much happened. The guys have written books, several books about Rendlesham Forest. Uh, Peter mm -hmm. Robbins and Larry Warren have an excellent book out there. Right. Left at Eastgate, I guess it's called. It's not called. Exactly. Look, all, all I'm trying to tell you is that, generally speaking, the reason the French stuff was not the top secret stuff and most of the English stuff, they couldn't hide the fact that there was a Rendlesham Forest case. And remember, Nick Pope uh, had been involved in some of this stuff. So yeah. they have not said there's nothing happening, but they sort of, uh, oh, well, no big deal. Uh, and that one only came out because uh, there was an American memo with Colonel Halt, <laughs> you know, that broke the story, uh, strange as it may seem. But as with many other cases, it's standard practice to 
discredit. You, you can see that with the Majestic 12 documents. Suddenly the place is flooded with garbage. And people want to say, well, all that stuff's garbage, so there are other stuff came from a different source. Well, that must be garbage, too. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Stanton Friedman, who's here for just one more segment, and also Frank Faschino, Jr., author of Shoot Them Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. Stan, I wanted to ask you, because this is the question that kind of comes to light here, and that is, we know about the various regulations. Major Kehoe mentioned them in his books thousands of times, I think, back in the 50s and 60s. Do we have the same regulations governing reports of UFOs today? Well, it's an interesting question because of the work of John Greenwald as reported, uh, Greenwald as reported on the Black Vault. We have this strange situation that John has letters from the Air Force saying it is no longer the role of the Air Force to be concerned with UFOs. It's none of our business. Then he got copies of the manuals for our best pilot manuals for our best military aircraft. And you know what? There's a portion in all of those which says what you should do if you happen to see an unidentified surface ship, and this is for military guys now, unidentified uh, submarine or unidentified aircraft or unidentified flying object. And again, it relates back to the service report, CIRVIS, Communication Instructions for Reporting Vital Intelligence Sightings. So the official word is, hey, we know from nothing. The unofficial word, as re- represented by what they tell their pilots, after all, is you better keep track of these things, and you have a priority communication as soon as you see something, and you let us know. But that doesn't go into a public channel. That goes into a military channel. People forget that all the data obtained by the whatever their latest name is, Aerospace Defense Command, is born classified. 
worldwide. Uh, they don't even use the word UFO. It's uncorrelated targets. I love that, uncorrelated targets. <laughs> We see them, we pick them up on radar, but they're not unidentified flying objects. They're targets that we can't correlate with any known flying thing. They're still playing games, and they're getting away with this because the press hasn't done its job. Very simple, very straightforward. And, of course, maybe they haven't because of things like what happened at the festival, festival at conference, exopolitics conference in Gaithersburg. The Washington Post certainly had a scathing article about that. So, you know, who, I'm not trying to excuse the press entirely. I don't need to tell you guys that there's all kinds of garbage out there that passes for ufology and that justifiably is treated with scorn. Uh, not what you guys do, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. And what can you do? We can't control those guys. No, you can only basically do your work. But let's yeah. get back to this uh, the issue of shooting down UFOs. So presumably... If the Air Force has this outstanding order, there would have been some success, perhaps, in our guys shooting down a couple of their guys? I, I don't know. That's a very good question, and I wish I had answers, and I'll never know. I don't suppose, unless anybody listening to us now may happen to know that uh, he was on the other end of the gun or the rocket or whatever that was successful. I don't know. That's a big mystery, and we'd like anybody who knows to get in touch with us. Look at www.stantonfriedman.com. You can call me. There's a toll-free number there. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, just just knowing what we what we know about the maneuverability of these craft, and I know in my own experiences seeing UFOs, what I have personally witnessed as far as maneuverability would suggest that it's highly unlikely easily that a machine gun could touch these things the way they move they could if not outspeed certainly outmaneuver any kind of a weapon along those sorts and in terms of the kinds of missiles that would have existed in the 50s it's a hard thing to believe that potentially there would have been any success again given the kinds of speed these things could deploy at the turn of a dime well the, That's the, like, the, well, the objects were sighted on the night of the flatwoods incident were uh like i said earlier just one saucer was seen right the rest of the objects that were seen were these gigantic cumbersome things that look like eggplants and uh footballs and they were not that maneuverable i don't know if if they were maybe the cargo i, I have no idea what they were but they weren't the sleek-looking saucer type. One of the uh, primary witnesses I worked with, he saw the UFO from about a half a mile away when it flew over the treetops and landed. He was an adult. He wasn't one of the kids, but he said it was about the size of a two-car garage, and it was approximately 18 by 32 feet. And, you know, it, it looked like a big egg. It was gigantic. And there were several, uh, I, I tracked it all throughout the, the summer of, of 52 in my book. These things were seen quite often. And they were also seen going down at several different points that night around the country. When also so what I'm saying, out. they all were highly maneuverable. It's well, carrying like a Greyhound bus to a Ferrari sports car. We don't know what the different functions of these objects were. Our best shot might have come when we switched from machine guns to rockets. 
that wouldn't be an obvious thing. I mean, here's the plane. The planes, when they first, the same, the F-94C didn't have Mighty Mouse when they first were flying, right, Frank? Uh, the, the A's and B's uh, had bullets, and the C had rockets on it, but the jets basically all looked the same except for a couple small configurations. And the so same we might have had luck. We might have had luck when we first switched to a more effective weapons system. And, and that wasn't publicized. No, it wasn't. It wasn't highly publicized because uh, at that point during the Cold War, the United States did not want Russia knowing what their top guns were. So they were led to believe that, you know, well, we still had bullets. When in actuality, the F-7U-3 Cutlass, the F-86D Sabre Dog, the Sabre Jet, and the Starfire C all had Mighty Mouse rockets on them. It wasn't too well publicized back in the 50s. And most of that information was um, classified for several years afterwards, Stan. And uh, actually, the Starfire had an onboard computer system, and it actually would lock on to its target. The pilot could basically just sit there and monitor what was going on, take his hands off the stick, and the plane actually flew by itself. And it actually figured out the exact moment, the precise second locked on to its target and would actually follow it, and the computer brain on board would actually fire itself. And, uh, that was that the new was, system, though. That was the but the new system. That Computer would, yeah. brain on board of an airplane of what year exactly? July of 52. And it would actually lock on. I actually, I showed this to Stan when we were in West Virginia two weeks ago. I actually have an F-94 Starfire C weapons data manual that the pilot studied. I used this within my book, and there's actually some uh, diagrams in there. So we were quite a bit more advanced back in 52 than, than uh, most people would think. A computer on board the airplane or a computer system on the ground that was linked to the airplane with the radio yeah. transceiver. No, it was on the Starfire itself. And and actually, some of the Sabre, uh, I mean, the Starfire pilots I spoke to actually flew these jets. Some of them didn't like the fact that the jets, when you put on automatic pilot and it locked on to its target, because if the target was moving erratically, the plane would move and actually follow the same course as the object or the UFO was following. Do you know what I mean? So if it was going up and going around crazy, flying around the sky, you were just sitting back getting sick and making these erratic movements, the pilots a lot of times like to actually have their hand on the stick, but in some instances where they were chasing something that was erratic, the computer would do it. It would pick up. The nose cone actually had a radar disc behind it on the Starfire C, and the computer was set up right in the cockpit area. There was another computer set up in the back, and this was all linked into a system, and they would lock onto it target and it would actually figure out and pinpoint the exact moment to fire the jet uh, the jets could fire these rockets it's quite advanced hey Stan just before we let you disappear before we allow you to jump off the ship now this program we broadcast early in October can you tell us what public appearances or books or things that you're working on yeah my new book uh, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience with Kathleen Martin is doing well out there in the world uh, it's listed on my website I wrote the forward for Jesse Marcel's new book uh, about Roswell, Legacy of Roswell. And I will be speaking at the Paranormal Conference near Grand Canyon 
October 22nd, I guess, and then in California, and oh, then I'm taking it off easy for a while. i got to finish another new book called Flying Saucers and Science. And I've got to work very hard to get that done by the deadline, but it should be ready by January 15th. And that'll be my magnum opus, or whatever the word is. So that's going to be a lot of work. I'll tell you what, Stanton, always happy to have you on the PowerCast. My pleasure. I'll let you know when the book's done. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're going to spend a few more moments with Frank Faschino, Jr., and he is the author of the book, Shoot Him Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. Before we go on, I wanted to ask you about this book. What got you started on this role? Was it all an outgrowth of Flatwoods investigations or what? Of the shoot him down aspect of it? Yes. Okay, well, I was researching the 1952 era with Flatwoods. I had accumulated literally thousands of magazines, books, and articles to try and familiarize myself with what was going on during that era of, of 1952, especially during the summer of 52. And that's when I started noticing all these different quotes and, and remarks about shooting, shooting down flying saucers. So as I was researching Flatwoods, I was kind of taking this stuff and putting it aside all of these years and accumulate and I have a tremendous book collection and magazine collection and I was just taking this stuff bookmarking them and sticking them aside my first book was actually about a 24 hour period that occurred over the United States which culminated in the Flatwoods incident this book actually covers the jet interceptions against saucers and UFOs beginning from June and carrying through September, the end of the summer. So it engulfs the whole bit of the, the summer, what was going on there. Flatwoods is, is in this book. I went further and researched the case a little bit deeper, and I had more witnesses come forward as an answer from the first book being released. Now, Frank, um, in talking about this idea of the Air Force giving pilots the order to shoot craft down, uh, in the little bit of discussion we've had in the show in the past about the 
Aztec incident in New Mexico, there were reports that uh, that craft seemed to have what looked like a gash in its hull that would indicate that indeed uh, it was potentially shot down. Have you done any research into that at all? Uh, no, but I know Scott Ramsey is writing a book about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that much about it, but um, with several researchers and, and guys like yourself have brought that point, the point up is all of these crashes that have occurred and have said to have occurred over the years, how many of them are actually tied in now? And people are looking back and go, well, maybe we did shoot them down. Maybe they weren't just falling out of the sky. Maybe they were, you know, acts of violence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was reported, you know, by Rupelt back in, in the 50s, if anything in the air over the United States commits an act that is covered by the rules of engagement, the pilot, the pilot has the authority to open fire. It was no secret. You know, you just, when I researched this, I just had to, to find stuff that was in a shotgun pattern all, all over the place magazine articles, you know, books, different interviews, you know, we were talking thousands of different pieces that I had to pull together of this. And there's an interesting quote. Are you um you guys familiar with Robert Gardner who was an investigator back in the fifties? No, I'm not, no. He he was out of California. Well, uh in nineteen fifty three Gardner actually spoke to General uh Chidlaw, head of the Air Defense Command at that point. He stated you know, he had a half an hour interview with him and he stated that the the, uh, a quote that was made by Chidlaw, and Chidlaw said, we have stacks of reports about flying saucers. We take them seriously when you consider we have lost many men in planes trying to intercept them. You know, this was just a little quote stuck away someplace. So what I did over the years is just flagged all these different things and started piecing everything together. And this stuff was going on from the early 50s right up to 56. I actually found the shoot-down article that came out of California in 56. So there was a lot of stuff going on during that era. Now, in more contemporary times, we have things like the uh, 1976 incident of a fighter jet going after a UFO over Iraq, um, over Iran, excuse me. What have you found regarding that episode and also more contemporary episodes where airplanes went after UFOs? Did Have you found any recent examples of airplanes potentially being downed by UFOs? I haven't even studied it or looked at it, to tell you the truth. My concentration has been, I've been back in this era for probably like 17 years now. I haven't paid much attention. Once in a while, somebody will send me an email or Stanton will get an email from somebody talking about something that happened. I got tons of them. I've looked at them, but I haven't had time to investigate and look into them at all. Hmm. A lot of pilots have been writing Stanton since this, you know, the awareness of this book has come out, you know, talk, talking about their, their comrades uh, who were lost in, in battles and shot down, mysteriously vanished. So basically, this is just the tip of the iceberg, and the book's only been released from my book for about two weeks now. So, oh, we're so it's fresh off the presses. Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. Um, so in the research you've done for this book, you literally didn't find one case where we can perhaps even suggest that a UFO was shot down by an Air Force pilot in that time frame. What? 
what I did is I combined, like I said earlier, I combined the Air Force did not admit to any of them because they said that flying saucers don't exist. So that's kind of um, the attitude that I took. They were scrambling after them. They were shoot-down orders, but then they turned around and they said a few days later they don't exist and they were temperature inversions, but they still continued to chase them. So how could you shoot something down that doesn't exist? So they never admitted to any. But then we have this overwhelming amount of uh, fighter jet pilots who disappeared and died over the United States for unknown reasons. And um, an interesting thing that I got involved with Stanton a few years ago is we were some of the first to actually go over the documents that were released by the Air Force, uh, Norton Air Force Base accident reports. They weren't easy to go over. They were approximately 100 pages each, and each document case took me anywhere from like six months to a year to look into, analyze, and break down. And the stories that I found in the excuses within some of these cases were crying shame, absolute, definite, 100% cover-up. Some of this stuff, I hate to say, it looks like it was covered up by a five-year-old kid. They are that bad. I also found several instances where stuff was reported to the press, mainstream newspapers, and then 50 years later, these documents were released, and I don't think anybody thought we were going to be cross-referencing these documents a half a century later. Well, that's what Stanton and I did and some of the military men that I worked with, and nothing jives. I mean, they're a complete joke, and I actually worked on a half a dozen cases that I wrote about in the book that took me several years of what happened uh, with some of these accident reports contained within them. Just kind of to explore and expand this, during the course of the time that you're investigating this, and of course, we wonder here, you're writing a book with a lot of sensational content. You're saying, of course, that we were ordered, our aircraft was ordered to shoot down UFOs back in the early 1950s. Has anyone from the government come over and said, Frank, you shouldn't be saying this? No, not a word. What I should be asking is where did all these men vanish to? Where did they go? If I was one of the family members and I had lost somebody, I'd want to know where they went. These cases I'm talking about, Gina, these combat veterans and these men, there's 192 cases. These occurred over the United States. Some of them were Navy over coastal waters. Why were these jets crashing over the United States and vanishing over the United States? Nobody's ever answered that. Nobody well, ever came forward and said, where are these guys were just dropping out of the sky. These guys were flying into clouds and disappearing. Where did they go? They went up and never came down. Well, we have to so assume no, that some percentage of these were legitimate airplane crashes. Right, talk, exactly. Right, we're talking about an area of history where this type of aircraft, jet aircraft, were relatively new. They weren't, you know, it wasn't the tried and tested jet aircraft we have today. Right. These were the earliest generations of these crafts. So it stands to reason that certainly some percentage of these would have gone down. Oh, right, absolutely. Right? But what I found uh, interesting is the combat veterans coming back from Megali disappearing a week or two after they come back or they're crashing mysteriously. Guys were hundreds of combat missions. 
that's what struck me odd that I started piecing together different some of the best stuff that I found was actually in Rupelt's book Rupelt was dropping little clues throughout his whole book of what was going on with the with the interceptions and you know during that time and the orders and the shoot down orders lurid duels of death and then I just started getting some of these Norton Air Force Base accident reports and analyzing them and they didn't make sense then I was cross-referencing some of these accidents, and there were UFOs and flying saucers seen right in those vicinities during the times of these accidents and disappearances. Yeah, it's interesting when you mentioned Rupel's book, because there were two versions of that book. There was the original right. version in 1956, then a later version of the book, which added an appendix with an additional chapter. And then right. one of the things that was most interesting about that book was the fact that he said, and I'm going to quote him, he was asked whether he believes that UFOs are real, and he said, I'm positive they don't exist. Now, in other words, he said after all this that UFOs could be explained by conventional aircraft, misidentification of known things, etc., etc. Yet the first book, you got the impression he really believed in it. So are we assuming, this is what Donald Kehoe had said many years ago, that Rupelt was approached by people in the government who pressured him because of his retirement income, whatever, to basically retract, throw, retract what he said, right. to stop dropping hints of UFO reality, and just to say, I don't believe it. What do you so think about this? He had a civilian this? job, too, at that point. Sure. You know, when, when he made his, you know, if you want to call that a retraction. Of course, that's you know, one of the considerations there. Does mm -hmm. that, of course, cast a little cold water on what he said in the first part of the book, too? I mean, we can assume maybe he had pressure, but we can't prove it. Although, supposedly, Kehoe quoted Rupel as saying, yes, I'm under a lot of pressure. There was that in one of Kehoe's books. Right. But are we to assume this or what? Because we use Rupel's book as such a rich resource of cases in that era. Now, if we go back even further, forgetting about 1952, and this was alluded to earlier, we also got to say that we shot him down in New Mexico in 1947 and 1948? We don't know about that. I don't know. I never looked into it, but I, I don't know about the technology back then. You know, it's from the the 51 and 52 era, what was going on. We know they were ordered to shoot them down. We're still, we're still looking for a lot of answers. Well, the question I have about all this, and this is possibly the devil's advocate point of view, but I just want to raise it, and that is that if we're being visited by alien beings, not just since 1947, but maybe for centuries, and they're way, way ahead of us, how could our puny weapons damage their craft? Well, who's saying they're way ahead of us? We don't really know. I've never met an alien and said, how advanced do you? What if they're maybe only 20 years advanced to us? What if they're two years advanced to us? I would love to go ahead two years and, you know, Yes, but there have to be a progression. We'd assume there might be some progression of technology that maybe in 1947 they were 50 years more advanced than us, but actually if you mm -hmm. look at the history of space travel, it would have to be possibly 100 years more advanced. And you would have right. to say, well, gee, as time passed, they got more and more advanced. Mm -hmm. And what about the reports of UFO sightings in the Middle Ages? Right. Okay, so during that 500-year period, they didn't become more advanced in their technology, the better able to resist our weapons? We I just wonder about hey, that. 
Right, I, I understand what you mean, but you keep saying they. Uh, who is they? Is this one particular race, or is there twenty different races visiting? One's more advanced than the other. I think you know, by definition, I, I understand. I think we understand exactly what you're saying, Frank. But if you're coming from another star system, and let's just and who says they're coming from another star system? Well, it doesn't seem like they're coming from another planet in our star system. That seems a mm -hmm. little unlikely. If they're coming from another star system, the distances we're talking about would definitely imply a civilization that was at least hundreds of years ahead of us, if not mm -hmm. more. You know, we know something about trying to get a craft outside of our stellar system, and uh, I, I think it, it strains credibility to think that uh, another life form would set off from even let's say a relatively close star and do a multiple what 40 50 200 year journey just to come to our planet specifically and then uh, go down in a ball of flames that that seems highly unlikely so i i understand what you're saying but i i think it it really would be really unbelievable to think that Creatures that were coming here from another star system are 20 years ahead of us. How do you defend that position? I don't think you can. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Frank Faschino, Jr., author of Shoot Him Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. Frank, you were asked yeah. a question by David about the technology of the pilots of the UFO craft. What do you think? I don't know what the technology is. My research was based on the men who were missing during this time. And, uh, well, we, we did have the rockets at that point. And supposedly UFOs don't exist, but there were still orders to shoot them down. And there was a lot of men that went down and disappeared during that time. I don't know everything that happened in each particular case. And there are so many cases missing during key points when social sightings had occurred. This book that I wrote is just the first piece that has tied everything together in this historical aspect. Six of the cases that I reviewed took me several years to look into. You have to read the book to understand a little bit more. 
but it's going to take several more investigators, several more years to look into this closer. We're at the breaking point, the tip of the iceberg. I just want to make everybody aware of what was going on during that era. The UFOs were seen in overwhelming numbers in 52, which the book is about. There were the most sightings during that year than any other time uh, at Project Bluebook and the most unidentified as well. And that era also has the most missing and dead airmen during that period at the time when we were told to shoot them down. Mm -hmm. If uh, some more documents come out, maybe we'll learn a little bit more. But I had a, a lot of trouble uh, finding documents. In particular, on September 12, 1952, there were documents that were pulled from that particular day and set to higher classification. I have no idea why they were. Mm. But there's a lot of um, pieces that we're just starting to find out that aren't there. And we're trying to connect the dots, and, and uh, it's it's hard and in several cases so i'm just going with what i have right now right well given that fact given that as we move further away from the date that you were researching at that point if i'm a researcher coming into this field right now looking into this topic does it right. make more sense for me to look at the 50s where it's getting again further and further away from when things supposedly happened or does it make more sense to look at more contemporary cases do you think like the iran episode which is only within the last 10 years. I think they're all great. Like I said earlier, I got involved in this this whole shoot them down bit because of uh, the Flatwoods case. That's what, what triggered me off getting into it and what the other researchers were saying back then. Keo and uh, Rukel were uh, pioneers in their day. There was a lot of stuff going on that they didn't know about, they were not aware of, and Rukel couldn't talk about a lot of stuff in this book. A lot of this stuff is just starting to come out of the archives for the first time ever, and that's what's Stanton and I and other some other researchers have been looking at. It's going to take more than just me or Stanton Friedman to do it, because like I said, man, you're talking documents that are approximately an average of 100 pages of military jargon, and you know, you just don't look at these things in a couple of days. You know, they're taking six months to a year to investigate and research and look into and find any inconsistencies within them. So we need more researchers out there who have the time to actually look at these cases. It would take a million years for one person to look at all these cases and find out what's going on, then cross-reference and, and try trying to find episodes where UFO, if, if a UFO did appear in that particular area, and in a lot of cases where these crazy things were going on, there were UFOs sighted in the area. Hey, I know that you're nursing <laughs> a cold, and we don't want yes. to stretch your voice any further beyond the limits. What's so again, so again, your book is entitled Shoot Em Down, The Flying Saucer yes, Air Wars of 1952, yes. and we will have a link at the Paracast.com website so people can order the book and check out your Flatwoods Monster Case, and we want to thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Like I said a minute ago, we need other researchers to look into some of this craziness and lunacy that was going on in that time, and the answers are actually right in the Air Force documents themselves. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. 
Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know, David, one of the things that troubles me about, obviously, the difficulty of getting information from cases that are 55 years old. But the other thing that troubles me is the fact that during that time, because of our paranoia, we had standing orders to pretty much shoot down anything in our airspace that could not identify itself because of the Cold War. So that's not necessarily UFO related so much as it is, well, you know, part of our society and part of our culture at the time. Of course, that could have caused some pretty nasty consequences. But on the other hand, do you think, David, that he's connected any of the dots here between UFOs, possible UFO crashes, fragments, and the disappearance of our own aircraft? Well, they're interesting points. I guess the problem is, Gene, that I haven't read the book. Based on the interview we just did, I don't know that I know a lot more about it now than I did before we started the interview, quite frankly. There are a lot of very interesting stories. Ultimately, the research is, is what it comes down to. And, I mean, if I were researching a situation like this, I would make every effort to see what documentation I could get through the Freedom of Information Act. I think it's certainly important to recognize that, indeed, the British Ministry of Defense has released a lot of information, and I think that needs to be looked at very carefully, even if one is looking into episodes that happened 50-some-odd years ago. We need to see the evolution of military policy about this, and I think if you look for that, you can potentially find correlations and, uh, and triangulation information, and, and that would be my personal approach about it. But at the same time, Gene, I, I'm a big believer in the idea that more contemporary cases need to be looked into for the simple reason that we have access to witnesses, that we have access to uh, slightly less diluted information. I mean, if we talk about a crash episode, I, I always keep coming back in my mind to what happened in Varginha in Brazil, you know, where supposedly there was a crash episode and supposedly there were creatures retrieved. Now, look, we're talking about UFOs. Who knows what the reality is, ultimately? I mean, one of the things I'd love to see in Frank's book is, are the references. Uh, let's see the uh, the index. Let's see... Let's see the bibliographic references that are cited. If we're going to treat this like research, then we have to do what research requires us to do, which is to correlate information, cross-reference information. I'm still very curious about the idea that the Flatwoods creature was a standalone entity. Now, I understand what Stanton was saying as far as, well, you know, maybe that's a technology that was put into use that time and then discontinued. That's a pretty big leap. When we look at contemporary reports of interactions with beings, we do find that there are some levels of consistency, not universally, mind you. I mean, yes, there are standalone situations where the weirdness is unique to that particular episode. 
But, you know, like we talk about on the Paracast here, gee, what's real and what's a screen memory? Well, the other thing is, of course, that you bring up screen memory, the fact that there may be some subjective interpretation. So the people, for whatever reason, subjectively interpreted what they saw in Flatwoods in a specific way, one where the circumstances were not duplicated, but by no means are they seeing what is actually there which is the most important point right. and the most difficult point to deal with. Right. And obviously, Stan Friedman is a cool guy, and Frank's a really nice guy, and these people are very much involved in the nuts and bolts of the situations they've investigated. So that makes things a lot more difficult to deal with, and certainly it's something that they probably have not investigated and maybe won't investigate, but at least we have the basic data there. But that's where the problem arises, where you have these exceptions. Are they indications that we're really seeing what's there or we're seeing it in accordance with our own particular perceptions and obviously there's so many variations of human personalities that could take one single type of phenomenon and manifest it in a thousand ways right well something stanton said stands out to me he said that he has access to people and places that can analyze without political issues or confidentiality issues coming across, any kind of retrieved material. So now I want to get on the phone with Dr. Lear, Roger Lear, and say, okay, potentially we have someone who can get that piece of metal you have analyzed. And then I want to get back on with Stanton and say, Stanton, we have someone who has what they think might be a piece of the Roswell craft. And to make that happen, I'm really curious about what both of those gentlemen would say when presented with that potential for getting an answer solved. Because, I mean, ultimately, Gene, this really is about trying to get to the bottom of this. Well, that was and the one thing that actually I found myself very interested in. As soon as he said that, mm -hmm. I thought to myself, hey there, we may have a possibility here. Maybe it's great minds think alike or great insane minds think alike. Whatever. Here's a possibility of hooking up Stan with... Dr. Lear and letting them work together to get this stuff analyzed. But right. then again, wouldn't he have contacted Stanton Friedman? See, that that's what I'm thinking. Him. Exactly. This seems a little odd to me. And we had to let Stanton go because he had to get off the, the connection. But that to me is, is just very, in, I won't say it's interesting, it's odd. Dr. Lear has been very upfront about the idea that he, I won't say fact because I don't know what he's got, but he's said publicly, I've got this piece of stuff. Stanton is one of the preeminent Roswell researchers. You'd have to think that if Stanton heard that, he'd be all over Lear saying, well, I've got guys who'll look at that. Give it to me. This is where, unfortunately, and, and again, we're guilty of this, too. I'm not going to try to claim that we don't succumb to the same problem, where ultimately, really, what we have is ufology being about people and people's experiences and people's perceptions and people's personalities and their politics. I mean, if we could all put aside all of our personal issues, well, gee, then the planet would be a nice place to live. But ultimately, no, we can't do that. People do have the anchor of their personalities weighing around their necks. And, and as I said, Gene, I'm the first to say I'm guilty of that. You know, I'm reactive, I'm passionate. Often I don't filter myself properly uh, or at all. As I'm getting older, I find I have less and less patience, which is definitely not a good thing. I'm not proud of that. But there it is. I mean, uh, when I'm confronted with stuff that's silly, I'm someone who will call it. I, I, I There's this thing about being politically correct. And I just have to mention something to you. Uh, at the day we're taping this, 
there was a piece of video floating around the web that was from, I mean, I'm having a hard time even talking about it or thinking about it because it makes me so angry. It's a clip from that uh, ridiculous show called The View. Now, we might just have had all of our listeners turn their uh, <laughs> iPods off. They're like, oh, no, what is he bringing this up for? Where Whoopi Goldberg and one of the other hosts on the show are having this discussion about evolution, as if there's anything to have a discussion about. And Whoopi Goldberg asked this, uh, this gal whose name evades me at the moment. I don't want to know her name. I don't want to remember her name. But apparently she's one of the hosts of the show. Whoopi says to her, well, do you believe the earth is flat? The woman looks at her and says, well, well, I don't know. Now, at that point, if I were in the audience, I would just go absolutely bonkers screaming. You don't know if the earth is flat? And there's this discussion that ensues where Barbara Walters tries to basically essentially say that, well, you know, if, if science tells you the earth is round, would you believe it? And it's like, are we really at a point in the, in the evolution evolution of our society where when someone says, well, I don't know if the earth is flat, she said, I never thought about that, which to me is absolutely astounding and quite frankly, terrifying. The idea that someone who states that they don't know whether the earth is spherical or not, and that they haven't thought about it, and that this person isn't booed off the screen, that somehow their opinion is meaningful in any way, I find personally not only insulting, but infuriating. I mean, well, we think point, about this, too, that these are people oh. who are being paid millions of dollars a year to be on a nationally televised network broadcast mm -hmm. every single day. Millions of people watch this. And they come up with this tripe. I mean, I'd rather watch them do the cooking segments if they're going to do that. If they're going to do some things that are not intellectually demanding, cooking is fine. That's cool. Oh, but intellectually demanding is one thing, pal, but not knowing whether or not. Yeah. You know, thinking, entertain for a moment. Oh, oh, yeah, the earth is flat. Look, if we can't get to any kind of consensus on essential core, it's kind of like asking, well, is the sun really there? I mean, at that point, if we're down to that, we have no hope. Let the asteroid hit us already because it's over for us. And, hey, listen, this is why our country finds itself in the terrible quandary we're in because of the fact that someone on TV who is in front of an audience every day who is granted the credibility that they're, yes, well, gee, if the network put them in front of an audience and they don't have a clown suit on, well, they must be someone we should listen to. And to some extent, when you've got someone going, well, you know, is the earth flat? I don't know. All I know is I have to feed my child. It's like, you know, you're going to try to say motherhood is an excuse for not knowing whether the frickin' earth is flat or round? Are you kidding me? That's just, as I've said on the show before, the most important image, single image of the entire 20th century is the picture of the Earth floating in space. I mean, what are we talking about here? This is not rocket science. This is being awake or not. This is having a brain or not. Hey, hey. Uh, you know what? Listen, call me conceited. I contend that if you don't know whether or not the Earth is spheroid, then you're a moron. And so, I, I mean, that is just the bottom line issue. That's not a belief. That's not my, my feeling about it. No, that's the deal. So the problem is that when that's the reality of where we're thinking, 
I think we're never going to have an answer to the UFO situation. If that woman is representative in any way of any amount of our culture, this is going to be a mystery forever, and we're never going to have an answer. And let's just make this the very last paracast. Seriously, why bother? I think there are a few smart people left. Nope, they're gone. They left the planet. <laughs> this is the last. You just listened to the last episode of the Paracast. Thanks for listening. And the view is on every morning at some ridiculous time. We're not sure when, but, you know, there it is. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 